Okay, well, good morning, everybody. Um, say a few words and then obviously do some sitting. And I want to connect a little bit with last night and add something else in, which I think is important for you to bear in mind. Last night I was talking about our desire to find certainty, to find things which are permanent. Now, one of the things that you might find, again, you have to examine your own experience, is that leads us to attempting to control all sorts of elements in our life, an increasing struggle to control what actually we can't control, a desire to be the manipulator behind everything, be there controlling and basically trying to make certain, as I say, what is absolutely uncertain. And basically this is futile, as you can see, this futile desire for certainty, this futile desire to control things. Um, Pablo Neruda, I don't know if any of you know, poet, actually wrote a wonderful poem which I want to read to you to start off the day. Um, And I think it really is about the efficacy and the beauty of finding the tranquility that we often do within the meditative experience and what this actually means. And this is what Neruda says, and I think it's almost like a start off to a meditation in itself. It says, Now we will count to twelve, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let us not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment, without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, and victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves, and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us, as when everything seems dead in winter, and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go. I think, really, I mean, that's almost like the beauty of what we do sitting in this room, isn't it? Creating that kind of silence, that quietness. A quietness about not doing. Part of our incessant activity is this attempt to control, of keep doing, 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 doing. And again, like the having that I spoke about, um, it gets confused with our being. We are what we do. We are what we have. We can't just simply be. What we've been doing this weekend is the perfect antidote to all that. Just sitting and being and trying to find out who and what we are. In just little ways, just attending to the simple things. The simple things of hearing sound around us. The simple things of understanding a little bit about how we walk and how we breathe. These are the simple things. However, and this is where I want to just go just for a few minutes and then we'll do the practice. 
in this sitting and doing nothing, we encounter obstacles. I'm sure you've all encountered some of them over this weekend. These are literally, in Buddhist terms, what are called hindrances. Um, The actual word in Pali, which is nivarana, actually means to throw a veil over something. They throw a veil over reality. And there are five of them. If you probably haven't gathered this, Buddhists are list fetishists. (laughs) They love all their lists. Um, But there are five of them. And these are really, really, if you're going to practice seriously, are worth remembering. Because these, in terms of what we're befriending, you know, when I say to you, befriend what is arising, befriend those thoughts that are coming in, a lot of the befriending has to go on with these, because they will become firm, familiar friends. They'll come back again and again and again. And they are. I mean, let me just list them straight away, and then I'll talk just a, you know, about a, a little, you know, each of them briefly. The first is sensual desire. Well, I mean, I think that one's readily understandable, but I'll say a few words about that. The second is ill will. The third actually is a dynamic duo. It's usually, I love the old-fashioned translation, and I'll put it into modern English. The old-fashioned translation translates it as sloth and torpor. <laughs> and then there is the fourth, which is worry and restlessness. Yeah. Now, there's plenty of that usually going on in the cushion. And then there's the one that really undermines everything, which is sceptical doubt about it. So those are the five hindrances. The last one is really difficult, really difficult one to actually begin to find our way out of, that sense of real doubt about the efficacy of what we're engaging in and what we're doing. Sensual desire. Well, what is sensual desire? Well, it's everything, all the goodies that you like to think is Probably in the sit or the walk before lunch, it's probably thinking about what's for lunch. That's sensual desire. It doesn't have to be massive kind of sexual fantasies or anything of that sort. It's just, I'd like a cup of tea. (laughs) When you hear these words, it sounds so so sort of heavy, doesn't it? Sensual desire, you know. But it's actually about those little things. I mean, Larry Rosenberg, actually, in his book, Breath by Breath, tells a wonderful story about sensual desire. And it's a very good book, if you haven't read it. It's called Breath by Breath. Um, he talks about sitting on the cushion, thinking he's actually really getting somewhere and getting really, really concentrated until the dinner gong goes. And he says he's like a greyhound off his cushion. <laughs> Which I think is a wonderful description of you know, just how sensual desire can take us away suddenly. And so we're, we're thinking about all of those things, those comforts, those treats that we give ourselves. And we do this. And not only will you discover them on the cushion, you'll discover them in everyday life, day to day. There you are. Coming home from work, had a hard day. What do you think about, first of all? A nice little treat to give yourself, often. And it's usually something of the form of, I don't know, chocolate, cake, <laughs> something of that form, something which is really sweet and comforting in many ways. Perhaps you don't all do that, but I know a lot do. Ill will. Well, this is every aspect of you know, feeling badly towards others. You know, the resentments, the resentments that we hold um, for others, from the minor little things <coughs> they do to the big things they do to us, to the way the world is, to the way I am. You know, these kind of feelings that we have, which are the same as aversion, really. It's a synonym for aversion, of not liking, not wanting. 
Um, but it takes this form, really, which is, I think, a very personal form of feeling ill will towards the world and towards myself, not literally feeling comfortable often in my own skin. Um, this is the form that ill will takes. Then there is, well, I said sloth and torpor, actually. The modern translation will say, say something like sleepiness and dullness. Yeah, this dullness and sleepiness that arises often during the meditative state, often, again, post-lunch, after your sensual desire has been gratified. <laughs> yeah, so the sleepiness and dullness that arises um, is not just here, and this has to be, if you're going to do practice, and even in your daily life, you have to look at this very closely to see whether it is actually genuine mental tiredness or genuine physical tiredness, because this is not really what is indicated. If you've got general physical or mental tiredness, then you really should rest. You know, when you encounter this on the cushion, this sleepiness and dullness, um, sloth and torpor, if you still like that as a translation, when you encounter this, what you're encountering is resistance, basically. Escape. Wanting to escape the difficult. When you've had the previous two, sense your desire and you haven't gratified it, ill will and you've kind of looked at it and examined it a little bit, then you go, oh. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just trying to kind of escape it all, the difficulties that we, that we have here. So this is a form of escapism. So you have to very look very closely at what's going on um, in your own mental continuum to, to, to discern... <laughs> You know, what is genuine sleepiness and what is genuine tiredness, as opposed to this form of escapism. Worry and restlessness, almost excitement and depression as well. It can be this almost vacillation of the mind, almost a bipolar tendency of the mind to move from one state to another. And it's often about what we, for example, and speaking here specifically about the meditation process, it's about specifically what we bring to the cushion often in terms of what do we expect. Most of us come with expectations to the cushion. So there's a kind of restlessness there, um, often a, an excitement about doing it. You think, yeah, wonderful, I've got some time, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to get awakened. <laughs> yeah. And what happens? You sit down and you just encounter the chaos. You encounter the mess. And you might sit for 45 minutes, you might sit for two hours. Basically looking at this, this chaos. And so there's a kind of disillusionment slips over. It slips over almost into a depressive element as well. So this can get into worrying. Am I doing it properly? Yeah. Now this shades off now into the final one, which is doubt. And I've only given you very, very quick glimpses. I mean, I could spend a whole day just examining the five precepts alone. So this slips over into doubt. Am I doing it properly? Is this the right way? Actually, does this get me anywhere? Couldn't I be doing something much better than this? Yeah. I've got a lot of work to do. Is this a waste of time? <laughs> Any of those thoughts ever crossed your mind as you're sitting there? This is doubt. It pulls the rug out from under everything. Yeah. Out, un, from, out, from under all of your practice, if this continues, this doubt. Now, obviously you can't stamp on it and push it away. There's no point in doing this with any of these any of these hindrances that arise. So that's why I say they have to become familiar friends. You know? Recognize them, see them, acknowledge them. The acknowledgement, part of the befriending process, is just actually owning up to the fact they're there at all. You know, it's like saying, well, hello, familiar friend, good old sensual desire, here you are again. You know, there's doubt arising, whoopee. <laughs> 
you know, you've no need to kind of make enemies out of these. Um, you no need to make enemies out of your thoughts, out of the processes. Now, these will come as vague thoughts. So, as I say, they'll probably not come as me identifying sensual desire. They'll come as a desire, perhaps, to lie down and go to sleep, a desire for a cup of tea, a desire for something to eat. You know, perhaps even sexual fantasies and things like that will creep in at times. You know. But instead of pushing them away, whatever it is, and I'm only using the first one as an example here, in your acknowledgement there is a befriending process. Just acknowledging it is that, that it's there. And in this process, in, the, in befriending these things, which are arising, not just on the cushion, remember, I say in daily life they're arising again and again and again. If you have time, identify them. See them, because in doing that, in befriending them, you're befriending yourself, because this is who you are at this moment in time. doesn't mean it's going to stay that way, but this is who you are at this moment in time when those things are arising. So to push them away and to repress them is to repress dimensions of yourself and to not acknowledge dimensions of yourself and ultimately to make an enemy of certain portions of your psyche. So this is about sane mental health actually beginning to acknowledge who and what you are at this present moment in time. So this is very, very important. I was going to do this, cover this in the final session, but I know many of you kind of disappear after lunch often. You know, it's like being in the cast of an Agatha Christie novel. <laughs> <laughs> lots of empty spaces on cushions, and you wonder what's happened to them. <laughs> so this is about this befriending process. So... In identifying these five hindrances, you're not, as I say, making enemies out of these things. You're learning to really befriend yourself by seeing who and what you are at this moment in time. Now, there are things that we're doing, things that we're setting in motion, and just the sitting process in the daily examination of our life process, which is hopefully supplanting those by actually placing wholesome conditions. By developing, for example, let's take the very last one just as an example because we're running out of time for this, is that by placing instead of doubt in there, developing confidence, often um, by doing reading, listening to teachings, um, you know, perhaps even approaching the original text for doing readings, but if you can't do that, approach secondary sources. Develop some confidence. You know, do some practice. See what's going on. And this way you develop... And the old fashioned translation for this is faith, but I don't like it. It sounds too theistic. It sounds stuck within the kind of you know, main religious traditions. And it actually doesn't even mean that in the Pali and, and, and the Sanskrit. It actually means confidence or trust in what you're doing. So you're developing confidence. And this confidence is based on experience. That's where your own experience counts again. It's not on the authority or say-so of somebody else. It's based on your own experience, beginning to see a little bit. Even if you only start to get glimpses, and those glimpses for you are true, that is your experience, and it can be built on. It can be a way of widening your vision into this whole process of what we do in meditation. I've already said enough. I could talk for the whole period, but I'm not going to, (laughs) because we ought to do some practice. So let's again, let's assume the posture which really embodies that intention to remain alert. So this is counteracting that sleepiness and drowsiness, perhaps, that we tend to want to fall into. 
So we spend a, just a few minutes just paying attention to placing our hands, perhaps even looking at the body, finding whether the body is comfortable, and getting, settling ourselves into a position where we're not going to have to shuffle around too much. So knowing that we're not in a position which is going to cause us pain to start with. This is very, very important, because the, the point of meditation is not to experience pain. Discomfort will arise no matter what position you're sitting in. That's just a product of being in, in this embodied form that we are. So we minimize the chances of pain by getting into a correct posture, making sure our spine is straight because that embodies the attention, intention to stay alert and awake. Place our hands in a comfortable position, either on the knees, the thighs, or placing one hand on top of the other. And really, I think that's a matter of personal preference. Some traditions say one as opposed to the other, but I think it's a matter of personal preference which feels more comfortable to you. And then when you feel you've gone through that, make sure the head's in the right position, in a comfortable position, the spine is straight. Then you take your attention to the tip of the nose, to the rim of the nostrils, perhaps. Or, if it strikes you more forcibly, the upper lip, where the breath, the unwarmed breath is entering the body. Letting your attention rest there. Before we start to do anything else, just get used to that. Being aware of this spontaneous rise and fall of the breathing. Remembering not to control the breath. This is not some kind of breathing exercise. We're observing, we're not controlling. Remember where I started from this morning? Releasing our sense of control. This is a very good place to start. By just observing the breath. Letting the mind, the attention, rest gently on the breathing. So that you're starting to develop a sense of the right amount of effort that's needed. You're not forcing and straining the mind to try and hold on to this breathing, but you're letting it rest there. And this is a much kinder way of doing it rather than you know, trying to grab hold of the object which is the breath and desperately clinging to it. observing this rise and fall, rise and fall. That happens spontaneously. We are not doing anything for it to...
come about. And once you've settled yourself into that, just that observation, <coughs> feeling the sensations of either the upper lip or the tip of the nose, this is where you're observing it, letting your attention rest there. You then start to observe some of the characteristics of the breath. A little gap, very tiny pause. Normally, normally we don't observe, it happens so quickly. A little tiny pause between the inhalation and the exhalation. The exhalation and then the inhalation. We're starting to observe that. Still letting the mind rest on the, the rise and fall, the spontaneous rhythm of the breath. And then we perhaps start to look at another quality of the breath. Is the long breath short or is it long? You don't have to label this to see this. Is the out breath short or is it long? So we're looking at the length of the breath, perhaps alternating between now between looking and observing the little pauses between the inhalations and the exhalations. And now starting to look at the, the length of the breath. And even as we're doing this every so often, we can just check our posture, become aware of the body, making sure the spine is straight. But we still embody that intention to stay awake and alert. And as we're doing this at some point, if we find ourselves, as we inevitably will, having drifted off, Thoughts, feelings, emotions, whatever it might be, even powerful bodily sensations might have pulled us away from the observation of the breath, this simple observation that we're engaged in. Well, we don't pull ourselves immediately back to the breathing. We see what is there. If it's a powerful bodily sensation, we note it. We 
You can see it as something pleasant or unpleasant. It might be a thought or a feeling, an emotion, an image, a fantasy. Whatever it is, and it certainly might be one of the hindrances coming up in these guises. It could be sensual desire or ill will, dullness and sleepiness, worry and restlessness or doubt arising. If they are, identify them. Befriend them, note them. In a way, what I'm saying is just acknowledge what is there. Don't push it away. The tendency, for example, if it's a nice sensual fantasy, is to want to continue it. If it's ill will, I often want to push it away. so that we actually see what's going on, but without pursuing it any further, without getting caught up with what is there. Only once you've acknowledged, befriended, befriended your demons, only then do you gently and with great kindness And I emphasize here particularly this, the gentleness and the kindness. Do you lead yourself back, lead your attention, your awareness back to the tip of the nose, the observation of the breath, the arising and falling, the qualities of the breath, the pauses between the inhalation and the exhalation, and the length of the breath. And it doesn't matter how many, many times we have to do this. How many times we have to note what is there. This is the insight, beginning to see what's there. Beginning to know ourselves. Every time, once we've drifted away to acknowledge, to see, to befriend and to lead ourselves back. No matter how many times we have to do this in the course of a short sitting like this.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.